Welcome to Building Conversations, a construction podcast powered by the STO Building Group. On today's episode, 30-year construction veteran Rob Leon will be speaking with Aaron Schiller, founder of Schiller Projects, an award-winning design firm that leverages weeks of data for a unique approach to each project. So uh, today we have Aaron Schiller. Welcome, Aaron. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me, Rob. So, Aaron, tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, how did you get into architecture and design? I started as an urban planner, and then I went into working construction crews, and then I worked in politics, doing community organizing for two plus years, grassroots wow. levels up to national political levels. Then I went back and got an architecture degree. So I kind of came at it. Um, uh, circuitously. Mm-hmm. But each one of those touch points is reflected in, in a part of how we work today. I was going to say that uh, that background almost fits perfectly into the things that I've read about you and your company. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love that background. Uh, it's community based, mm-hmm. right? It's uh, urban development based, which is great too. So it's all about uh, knowing how people interact with the environment, correct? And networking our solutions. So right. uh, not to abuse that word. Uh, but finding the different touch points, the different stakeholders in each of our environments and trying to activate them to give us a robust information set that we can then use to approach the problem or question of design uniquely for those people specifically in that context. That's great. So tell me a little about uh, yourself and your company and who else is on your team. We've got a pretty mixed group. So if you walk into a typical architecture firm, you see almost 90% of the employees being architects, maybe 10% business side at most. We are 60 to 70% architects, and we have a whole lot of different backgrounds from construction through to um, MBAs, as well as graphic designers and data visualizers. So we're a small team, but we have a robust uh, network of, of backgrounds. Great. And how long ago did the company start? I started the company six years ago while I was still finishing my degree. Awesome. So did you ever work for one of the big uh, architecture firms? Prior to school, I worked for Santiago College Rava, which Uh is a very different type of education and class A architecture. Not so much what we do, but there's a way that they approached construction, engineering, and architecture as holistically considered that we definitely have in our practice. And so going through this, you know, nice, diverse background, uh, the education with architecture, the education with the firm, um, what was the main driver to lead you to this concept of uh, data-driven design? The idea of just jumping into a design problem that's nothing more than a design problem never really interested me. I didn't necessarily know how to solve that. If you wanted to make a loop-de-loop or a swirly-swirl or a pyramid out of something, we can do that. But is that really understanding what the issues are and tackling them that way? So I leveraged my background in these various fields, particularly politics, to try and investigate what the core issues of the program are. So when you come to us, you might say, I have 342 employees, 60% of whom need offices, and I need 12 conference rooms. And our first question is, why? And do you? Sure, sure. And then we break it down for them. Awesome. So I guess the first uh, part of that why is, of those 300 and something uh, people, uh, how many actually come to the office on any given day? That is, that is a, uh, a statistic we want up front. 
you know, depending on how new, how old your company is or how large your appetite is for change, you might have 15%, you might have 95%. And some of those people might have committed workstations and offices and a lot of them might not. So we tend to find that our clients skew towards one bucket or another. They've either gone all in towards one direction or all in towards another direction. And that sort of sets up the question based on how old they are, whether that's working for them or not. Sure. And it leads into a, a very important business decision of how much very expensive space do they need to lease. And that's a big argument behind doing this. And we work uh, with a lot of our clients before they take out a lease. The question is, how can we align your approach to space to meet your business model and create the work environment that will make your employees comfortable and blossom? Excellent. I love it. Because at least if they're going into a, a decision to lease X amount of square foot, mm. you know, how much of it is for the space they need today and how much of it is for expansion or contraction? I mean, because the company may be growing, but they're not necessarily asking people to come to the office every day. One of our really interesting challenges lately was we were approached by a newly formed nonprofit, very successful backer behind the nonprofit, 19 employees uh, at the beginning of 2019. They know they want to have 95 employees by the beginning of 2020. So they came to us with a question. They already had a space. They were thinking about taking more space in that building or finding something new. And what they wanted to know was, okay, if we know we're going to quadruple our size in four quarters or less, how can we keep the collaboration and the workplace culture that we think is appropriate for us through that kind of dynamic transition. And so we went through a, a whole look at how each employee currently worked, what the uh, likely uh, hire to fit these new roles they were envisioning. Were they coming out of consulting? Were they coming out of Google? Were they coming out of a law background? And we came up with profiles for each of these new hires and what they probably experienced from a, a study culture in school or a work culture after physically in those spaces, we go, oh, well, those people could have a likelihood of hoteling. These people really come from a more traditional work your way up to the corner office model uh, if they're a law school student. And we came up with a, you know, here's what these people are going to come in on day one and be used to and comfortable with. Here's what you want them to go towards. Let's come up with a plan for doing this with your space so that your hires are comfortable on day one and you get them into the new environment that you want them to have. That's awesome. So it almost sounds like you're helping them develop their culture as they grow. Exactly. Which is fabulous. And, and align it with the business goals. Exactly. Which is, that's a very unique aspect of it. So using two words that you did, uh, which was collaboration culture, yeah. leads me to the question of, well, there's the WeWork model. Um, they're building collaboration, they're building the, the we of the workplace. How do you see yourself uh, either um, expanding on that model, using that model as a baseline, but also differentiating yourself? I'll take differentiating first. Great. WeWork, tremendous company, they've had great success, and there are a lot of very brilliant people who work there. They're getting very different data, and a lot of it's about employee satisfaction. When we're working with a company, we are studying how long is an employee A on a, on a call? How many calls a day do they have? On those calls, are they talking or are they listening? How often are they meeting? Where is that happening? Is outside people coming? So we're looking at scale, frequency, and duration down to the legal secretary or the, the facilities team to understand a full picture of how their day is actually spent. 
Then what we try to do is separate that out from the architecture, because we keep architects on our staff at sure, the end of sure. the day, that these people are working in. And, and ask the question, is the way they're working organic and inherent to the way they want to work? Or are they running around a building full of columns trying to negotiate for space and for opportunity all the time? So, I mean, I think the, uh, the thing that I got from what you were saying is that there is a tremendous amount of research that you're doing before you even think about what the concept should be or what the design should be. And it takes more than just sensor technology, obviously. Mm. So tell me a little bit about the process that you and your company and your team goes through with the client to get all of that data that you need. Sure. We typically work with a client for 15 to 16 weeks before the word architecture comes up. We do a survey. So we go at them initially digitally and we broadly touch every level of employee who's involved in uh, what the new space could be. And we look at what they're doing in their current space. And we ask these questions of uh, scale, frequency, and duration. How long are you doing these different things that you do during your day? How often are they happening? Or who are they happening with? We get that big pot of data back. And then we sift through it for patterns. When we have those patterns, we then go and we meet. We workshop entire teams. So we just finished workshopping 700 employees for CBS to get their sales and networks teams on a big floor plate downtown. They're moving out of uptown. And that was a three-week process to, to do all those data points. And now we've talked to you and we've asked you to write stuff down. And we can cross-reference those things mm -hmm. and come up with uh, a third data set that feels a little more accurate in like the truth and the facts on the ground. So I could see a couple of challenges. You could be talking to longtime employees that can tell you how they're working today, but may not know some of the options of how they could be working. So is part of the process the education or visualization for the employees say, you know, here are some other ways that you can work. Is, are there tours involved? Is there, uh, are there uh, you know, schematics that you can draw at while you're going through this process, or is that sort of the second stage of the, of the journey? It's the second stage for most of the employees, and for the team that's dedicated to driving the project, it's the first stage. So while we're doing this, we're doing tours with that leadership group. And that leadership group is asking questions and seeing all the different models out there and learning about them. At the same time, we're learning about the whole company and we're looking at these models and we might come back at the end of this strategic analysis and go, these are three models which we think actually apply to you. You're not in one cleanly. So we, we would suggest looking at those two things. And then at that point, as the leadership gets super educated on these things, we use their time appropriately, then we can go and make these decisions. And as we start to design it, we start talking to the bigger company and getting the whole company on board. And that doesn't stop until move-in, and often a few weeks to a few months after move-in. We're talking to those people through the whole process. Right. And uh, in that design, are you building in flexibility in order to make adjustments after the move-in? We are always looking at, at what we're going to leave them with and then how they're going to redefine it for themselves. There's some fun ways that that happens. One of our early projects, we designed some flexible office furniture pieces. So instead of having a fixed situation on a wall, you had some things you could move. We thought there are probably three ways that people will use this, right? As designers, we were pretty sure we knew the three ways that the office was likely to be used. 
We came back a year later and found 11 different configurations, all independent, repeated, you know, different amounts by 200 different people in all of these offices. And they all loved it. No one complained. They just adapted. But the space still had the same furniture. It met the branding requirements. It looked great. So that was a big aha moment for us very early. So there are some things we, we focus on as we do these designs that we can uh, build in flexibility on day one, as well as might have the bigger idea of, you know, if you have expansion space, how that's going to change in year five or year 10. I think that's great, especially when we think about, you know, the new generation of employees that are coming in, right? Everyone was focused on the millennials and now it's, uh, it's Gen Z, I guess. So there's a lot of research that you may be doing or may not be doing. Uh, behind the scenes to say, what are the high schoolers and college kids, uh, what are they going to ask? Well, what's going to be the driving factor for them? Do you do that as well? So we, we are an office full of millennials. We have some Gen Z. I teach often Gen Z students at the Architecture University at Columbia. So we are quite well versed in the things they want and that they are, are used to. They're certainly not focused on the corner office. And you can understand that. And they are focused on flexibility, not just hour to hour, but day to day and where they can do it. So every company has a, and every culture has a choice to make about what's the right balance for them. How often does physical proximity lead to new ideas and how to balance that against uh, the idea that people might be working from Idaho Falls and Manhattan in the same job. So one of the things that we struggle with in our business, because we're a very face-to-face uh, -face industry, right? It's all about client relationships. 100%. Right? And so, you know, you try to say, how do you keep the company's culture, right, alive? And how do you even establish a culture when people are not necessarily in the office? Let me give you our example of what we're going through and experiencing. So I have MBAs and architects in the same office on the same team. Those are two very different backgrounds. That MBA portion might be heavily involved in the architecture side, but I find them to do very competent, collaborative work remotely uh, with consistency and execution. My architects want to be in the office. They have to be in the office. They want to be on paper and on a screen pointing it at the person next to them. It might just be a quick question about a command on, on, a, on a computer program, or it might be an in-depth charrette. So it is industry to industry, and I also think its personality type has been developed over time by the career and the work that those people have sought out. So it's, it really varies, and what's important is being able to understand it and manage to it. I think it's great because every problem that you need to solve, identify and solve for the clients, the best way to go about it is really that cognitive diversity. Yeah. Right. Getting people in the room that may not necessarily be the experts that are on the frames, the adjacencies that are that are to the real problem, but can offer some amazing solutions that you wouldn't think about. And also to come at it in a different way. You know, an architect is really going to come at it as a design solution and where an MBA is going to come at it as a business solution. Um, so going back to the, uh, the new group of employees that are coming into the workforce. We've seen a lot of amenity spaces, mm. uh, you know, collaborative areas, but also, you know, like a vertical campus in a way. So they want to have more things available to them in their workplace because the lines between workplace and, and personal space is kind of getting blurred. It's like a nice gray area. 
Is that something that you find the, uh, the new generation wanting? The new generation wants flexibility, first and foremost. How they define that differs. Largely, people resort to, okay, well, that means that they want to come in a little late or they want to work from home some days and other days. It can mean that, but it can mean a lot of other things. The office should be a point of attraction. The things that can happen there must happen there because they really aren't enabled to happen elsewhere. And that's how you turn it into an experience. The same demands are being made of retail that they are of workplace right now at, the, at their very core. So the way we do that is we start with those leadership groups and we try to deconstruct the idea of the desk is your office. Even for those who do hoteling and working around the office, there's still a bit of a laggard there to think your desk is your office instead of the whole office being the workplace. And sometimes you want to lounge and read and sometimes you want to stand at a coffee bar and sometimes you want to have focused heads down time, as we call it. And those three spaces can all coexist in the same space. And if you free up the emphasis and the spend on the personal space as the end all be all of the office experience, then you enable all other types of environments into the workspace to take on these, the multitude of ways you're interested in working and that you feel better and more effective when you work. Which I think is great. So that allows the person to make an individual choice. And when I came into the business, which was a little while ago, you know, the big office was behind a big wood door. You didn't see what the boss was doing in the back, right? And that was your aspiration. One of the really fun conversations we've had with the big bosses that we've seen turn the lights on before on this issue was I asked a, a bigwig, how he used his office because he had a 2000 square foot office it had a couch section it had a table conference section and it had a private desk section well he said well i start in the morning at my desk i uh, i walk around for a while on calls i'll then work at my table i'll then take a nap <laughs> uh, briefly he wanted to make sure we knew and and then i'll work on my couch and i'll read on my couch in the afternoon and then i'll wrap up again at the table and all we said was, so you work the way all of your employees work, except you're the only one with space to do it. Right. And when we said that, he understood we weren't trying to shrink people's offices or take away their private space. We were trying to democratize the space and take those couch moments and those table moments and the walking moments and the desk moments and stretch them out across right. their entire workspace. Keep with everybody. Because everybody feels that way. Right. And everybody works that way. It's not a... And it's actually a good business plan as well. It's great so 2,000 square feet, you know. Not so effective. Right. <laughs> multiplied by the cost per square foot, and now yeah. you're, you're spreading But it, it is very people. important to understand for the people that are building these spaces and thinking about these spaces that, yes, we're doing more and less square footage, but we're doing more always. And that's what it's really about. And it's not just about shrinking square footage right. and making people feel like they're, they're giving something up. I think the interesting thing also is the uh, the way we go about, uh, from a construction manager's point of view, uh, developing the metrics, right? The cost per square foot is not as important. It's still a barometer. But there are other uh, ways we can be giving that information and that data to the client. Have you discussed that with clients? And So we get into the room, and there's a cost per square foot, and then likely a broker's also added a metric for efficiency per square foot, how much square feet per employee type A, per employee type B. 
that that metric is what a lot of people are used to. We don't use that internally. After those initial conversations and the lease is signed, we ditch that entirely. And what we look at is how much diversity uh, per square foot. So how much collaboration space, how much private heads down space, how much lounge space, how much general collaboration, how much cafe space. And then we come up with a metric that is looking to support all these different experiences people are looking for. And as a plus, it tends to give our clients a national metric. So if we've designed their New York City office to that metric, then they can go look at Chicago, which might have half as many people, and tweak the metrics to know that whether you're working in the Chicago office or the New York office, the same level of support per employee is there. I like that. And I think the technology is allowing us to do that. So it used to be that, you know, the, the standard metal stud sheetrock construction was driven because you had to put a lot of things in the wall, mostly wires for power and wires for data. Sure. And with less power being required uh, as a plug-in, you know, more USB type power, less structured cabling because we're on a, a wireless uh, network, it's allowing the design to become more flexible. Once they move in and there is that ongoing collection of data, whether it's through sensors, interviews, a combination of all of the above, it will then tell a client that, listen, you know, we can reevaluate the space in one year, three year, five years. We can make these adjustments. We can continually enhance the efficiency of the space that was designed in the first place. So for, from our conversation a second ago, when you were asking about uh, our, our, our nonprofit client who we've taken and planned their culture, we've planned their culture and it'll happen over three to four to five years, over two to three moves. And right now what we're really doing is moving furniture around on the board. And it's it might not be called architecture if you looked at it with a capital A on the table, but it is because it's architectural planning for that kind of flexibility. Right. And that is just a whole new realm in which we can work at another scale with a rapidity that we haven't had in, in some of the past with all the heavy construction. Absolutely, I agree. So in collecting the data and interviewing um, the many clients that we've been working with, is there anything that uh, has come as a surprise that said there was like another aha moment, whether it was across the board or, or one specific client? We sort of go in with uh, no preconceptions. That's what makes the process work. The client always has an aha moment. So an aha moment in our Hudson Yarns project was the client very much wanted an alternative to the traditional legal model, but they half of the people in that room didn't think one existed. One of the things we could point to them from a data perspective is, yes, your associates are on the phone during the day frequently. However, 40% of the time they're on the phone, they're not talking. Mm. What do you mean they're not talking? Well, you're the partner. You told them to get on the phone and take notes and then bring them to you after the call. So that's actually what they're doing is they're learning by your leadership on the call with the clients. And then the clients they have and their other work that equaled out to about 35% of the time. Okay, if they're at their desk, but less than 60% of their day is actually phone calls where there's a noise interruption in the background, it's less than desirable. Oh, we can plan for that. They don't have to be tethered to that desk all the time. That's great. I remember, you know, one of my first projects happened to be at a large law firm over probably about 120,000 square feet. And the biggest issue was confidentiality between office to office. So there was a lot of soundproofing. There was uh, white noise put in, 
Uh, how is that being solved in the new way that we are working? So acoustics are always privileged, but there's glass, there's curtains, there's screens made of wood or other filigreed materials so that we allow light and air to penetrate, but we stop sound where sound should stop. So with law firms, there's more casement storage. Things need to be obscured, but it's also unrealistic to think that any kind of information can be stolen or abused, which is it's not really about stealing within law office, it's about those firewalls for your client's sake that when you're walking down a hallway from a screen 15 to 16 feet away from you, it's just not practical. So when your people get into these environments and they see it, they're more excited by the upside of new ways of working than by the conservative concerns of right. yesteryear. So we talked a little bit about the cognitive diversity that your team is bringing, uh, MBAs, architects, designers. Uh, as a construction manager, we always like to know where do we fit into that process and how do you see us bringing value to that process? We like to bring in a CM as early as possible. We bring them in. Clients traditionally want to draw everything, design everything, and then bid it out. However, the pace of change and the pace, especially in New York, and cities like it of needing these things done quickly and executed have made it that model of full bid set and out the door difficult because it doesn't give you the flexibility to change to reconsider and reevaluate your pricing as you go along we're always an advocate of getting a CM in early and we like to work with them as partners so like I, I said at the beginning my background I worked as a steel uh, welder and then uh, one of our partners was a Finnish and frame carpenter. So we're versed in that language. And, and the more people we have in early, we always see value on the client side. So that's music to my ears, obviously, right? Because we're always trying to get in early. And for that reason, it's because we want to affect the documents, the design, let's just say the bid package that goes out to the subcontractors, but also to set the expectations, you know, the expectations with the client, the architect, uh, that what's being you know visualized and put on paper actually can be brought to fruition. Well, it can always be brought to fruition, at least 99.9% .9 of the time, whether they're going to afford it or Correct. not. And so we've found early as a young firm, we draw, draw, draw. The more you draw it, the more the construction team can understand it, the more feedback they can get, and then that's how you make it affordable. Right. It's a different industry than yesteryear where... Um, Architects might have been afraid of letting a, a builder in the door to comment on anything. The speed of, and the change in the capacity for design today in the built environment means you have to have all these people at the table and you have to have them in early. Otherwise, I really believe you are leaving value off the table that could otherwise be there. I would agree. And I think you said it before about, um, you know, what do your designers or architects really do? And it's a different skill set, let's say. Uh, again, coming up in the industry, uh, late 80s, early 90s, there were architects who could, you know, hand draw and detail, you know, very, very intricate stairways, for example. Uh, that's not as important these days, right? It's, uh, it's important to understand how it goes, but it's maybe not as important to physically draw it. Uh, we talk about bringing in even subcontractors on board early to, let's just say, design assist or finish that design. Because when you're collaborating uh, and you're doing very intricate stairs, for example, you do have multiple trades that have to come together. And those touch points, those meeting points, are probably best figured out with the trades in the room, with the construction manager in the room. So I like to hear that um, 
you know, your philosophy, your team philosophy is to, is to be collaborative, not only internally and with the client, but also with the construction manager and equal to trades. We, we require it in order to build the most outcome from all the data we process. The client has to be at the table, the builder has to be at the table, because there's just so much opportunity from this way of working. So I'm going to change the direction just slightly to technology. The technology and the tools, let's say, that we have at our uh, fingertips as designers and constructors, uh, do you see anything currently as uh, assisting or aiding in that process? Well, I, I'll tell you what I think a general misconception is at this time, that architecture and construction has been changed by technology. I don't believe it has. I don't think, to air quote the popular phrase, we have been fundamentally disrupted. I think we are more effective and we are moving towards new models. We Less people needed to do the work, broader people needed to do the work, hence the multidisciplinary approach. Also, we're moving towards a model, and this was one of the things we do almost exclusively in New York, where we don't deliver drawings, we deliver three-dimensional, fully realized environments on the computer, and then the contractor looks at those, and the client is getting now a little more used to looking at those, and it's an entire different speed with which we can work and conceptualize uh, problems and construction and how to solve them that way. Do you guys use uh, any uh, augmented reality as well to, to visualize and help visualize? Our favorite moment so far was we had 150 lawyers in Oculus Go headsets wandering around the coach space at Hudson Yards looking at their new office as if they were actually in it while it was in construction. And that was part of your earlier question to me about how do we communicate uh, the design and what they're getting used to. So change management. We use augmented reality to show the employees what the new environment is going to look like, what their new office is going to look like six months before they're ever in it, so expectations can start getting set. That's awesome. And I think that to take it another step is to actually get the tradesmen as well to, to go through that process to see what they're building. So we've done that two ways. We've held up iPads on a construction site while we're looking at a demoed room with a with a screen on there that changes it into the reality of what we think the built environment will look like and we've also put some we'll say more traditional old school builders in augmented reality and they've said many things that you can't say on your podcast <laughs> uh, i can only imagine what those are they love them they, they, love, they, them, yeah. they love them they just can't believe they didn't have this in 1979. that's true that's true well, this has been a great conversation, Aaron. I really Thank appreciate you, you coming me. in. Uh, and we will definitely be continuing this conversation as we, uh, uh, as we go through and see the, uh, the development and the evolution of the business. Thank you. Right. Thank you. What does it take to restore a century-old structure while bringing its systems into the 21st century? Tune in next month to hear all about historical preservation and what it meant to restore every square inch of NYC's St. Patrick's Cathedral. Thanks for listening to Building Conversations.